came on pretty loudly. <laughs> Still trying to get these, uh, this microphone adjusted here. Uh, tonight, we want to continue really what we've been doing for the last couple of, of Sunday nights, looking at stories from the Old Testament, from the days of the kings, and some of these uh, old narratives that we may be more or less familiar with, maybe some uh, not so much, but uh, stories that we can take and learn some practical lessons from to apply to our lives. And tonight, we want to talk about the prophet Elijah. I've seen Elijah called before a blood and guts prophet. And I think that's really a good way to capture the spirit of the man. Elijah is certainly one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. It was Elijah, we'll talk about this story tonight, but he stood before wicked king Ahab, he looked him in the eye and he said, as the Lord lives, it will not rain unless I command it. He faced him down boldly like that. He climbed to the top of Mount Carmel for a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And he essentially said, who's it going to be? Are you going to serve the Lord or are you going to serve Baal? Let's decide. When his life's work was over, rather than seeing death, he was caught up in a chariot of fire to be with God. It was Elijah, along with Moses, who was selected to meet with and to talk with Jesus to appear there on the mountain of transfiguration. Uh, listen again as God speaks. This is the very last paragraph of the Old Testament, actually. Malachi chapter 4, verse number 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Elijah was so significant, he was honored, he was chosen, in some sense, to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so when John the Baptist appeared on the scene, you remember people said, Elijah has come again. When Jesus on the cross cried out in pain, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, those who were standing nearby heard him and said, he's calling out for Elijah. And even today, in every Orthodox Jewish home, at Passover time, there is a cup that's filled toward the end of the meal for the prophet Elijah, because they're looking forward, expectantly, Jews, still waiting for Elijah to come to be the forerunner of the Messiah. You see, the point of all that is Elijah, the prophet, was an extraordinary man. And then we come to this remarkable statement in our text. It was read a moment ago, James 5, verse number 17, where it says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And what that literally means, some translations put it this way, Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah was a man just like us. I find it difficult to wrap my mind around that in some ways. Now, can you picture Elijah driving up and down the streets of Liberty? Or can you 
picture Elijah. I know uh, there are some here that go to, to Whataburger a lot after Sunday evening services. Can you picture Elijah ordering a number four with onion rings? It's a good order, by the way. That's the one with jalapenos. You can't go wrong with that. James says Elijah was a man just like us. Now, now if he'd said Peter was a man like us, I can see that. Peter, Peter was born with a foot-shaped mouth, as they say. He was always saying the wrong thing, speaking without thinking. He was always doing things impetuously without thinking. And so if James had said Peter was a man just like us, yeah, I can see that. Or if he'd said David was a man like us. We talked about David just a couple of weeks ago. You read through the Psalms, the Psalms of David, and you'll see that David writes about his frustrations. He writes about his searching for God, grappling for answers. He writes wondering who his friends are versus who his enemies are. David sinned. He sinned greatly. David had family problems. So if, he, if James had said David was a man like us, well, yeah, I can see that. David sounds a lot like all of us. But Elijah, a man like us, and we read the text and it says that when Elijah prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again that it would rain, the Lord immediately sent forth rain. See, the point is, Elijah did some extraordinary things. But he was just a regular, ordinary man. It's one of those great themes of Scripture that we find coming up over and over and over again. God can take ordinary people and work through them to accomplish extraordinary things. We want to look at just a couple of lessons that we can learn from Elijah's example this evening. Just a couple of things. The first thing we want to know is that God's person, God's man, God's woman will not compromise their faith. Elijah's name is really interesting. It, it's compound in the Hebrew. It's formed of two words, El and Jah, or Yah. It means Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the name of God, of the Lord. Yahweh is God. And that might not mean too much to us who take it for granted that, well, yeah, of course, if you believe in God, you believe in just the one God, you believe in the God of the Bible and Yahweh. But that name is important because it reflects Elijah's deepest convictions. See, Elijah believed that Yahweh is God and that there is no other God. He is the one true God. And that brought him in direct confrontation with Ahab, king of Israel. You probably remember Ahab. That name has a pretty significant connotation with it, and maybe even more so his wife, Jezebel. And those are some people whose uh, reputation precedes them. We all know those names. See, Ahab believed that Yahweh was God. He did. The problem is that he married a woman who was a Phoenician princess, and she believed that Baal was God. And Ahab didn't really see any problem with worshiping both of them. Yahweh is God. Baal is God. If worshiping one God is good, well, then worshiping two is even better. And so he built altars to Yahweh and to Baal. He built temples to both of them. He brought priests of Yahweh into his palace. He brought 
priest of Baal, into his palace. And he told the people, you can worship whoever you want. You can worship Yahweh. You can worship Baal. You can worship both of them if you want to. But Elijah confronted Ahab with his idolatry because as a result of his example, a lot of Israelites were now worshiping Baal fully. Some others were going back and forth. They'd worship Baal one day. They'd worship Yahweh another day. They couldn't make up their minds. And that's the background to this classic confrontation in 1 Kings chapter 18, this uh, climactic face-off on Mount Carmel. In verse number 21, Elijah challenges the people, and he says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. You can't serve both of these. Yahweh is a jealous God. He says that he is the only God. You can't serve both. So pick one or the other. Make up your mind. And that's when he arranges this contest. He challenges the priest of Baal to this public demonstration to see who really is the true God. The priest of Baal, you probably remember this story, they build an altar, and they put their animal to be sacrificed upon it, and they're supposed to cry out to their respective gods for one of them to consume the sacrifice. So they prepare everything, and they cry out to Baal. All morning long, the hours while away, nothing. They start crying louder and louder, Elijah starts to make fun of them because nothing's happening. He says, hey, he's a god. You've got to get loud. Uh, maybe he's away on a trip. Maybe he's busy. He even says, as the, king, or as the ESV says, maybe he's relieving himself. He's, maybe he's, he's in the bathroom. I mean, he's really picking on them here. And it gets to the point where they actually start cutting themselves. They're trying anything they can to get Baal's attention. But, of course, Baal doesn't exist. And so nothing happens. They've taken their turn. Elijah says now he's going to take his, to prove once and for all who's the one true God. Verse number 30, he says to the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He rebuilds that long-neglected altar to God. He places his sacrifice upon it. And then you probably remember he digs a trench around that altar. And he has them bring barrel after barrel after barrel of water. They soak down that sacrifice. So much water pours down to the altar that it actually fills that trench around it. And then he prays very publicly. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. And fire comes down from heaven and it consumes everything immediately. Not just the sacrifice, but the altar and the wood on the altar, and it even licks up all of the water there in the trench. Everything is completely gone. And it causes the people, verse number 39, they fall on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Yahweh is God. That's the proclamation of the life of Elijah. And I think there's a message in that that's worth hearing today. 
Elijah wouldn't allow himself to be contaminated by his surroundings. He kept his life pure. He kept his, his witness untarnished. He stood for the fact that there is one and only one God, and He is the true God. You think that's a, a message that we need to hear and proclaim today? You see, there's... You've probably all experienced this. At least in the West, at least in America. The world is actually okay with you being a Christian. It's socially acceptable to be a Christian. Just don't be too Christian. You can't be too overt about it. You can believe in God. You can be a follower of Christ, but you just need to still conform to the world and to its values. Then you can be a Christian in your own time all that you want. This is a name that may be familiar to some of you, Terry Cole Whitaker. She was a, a prominent figure in the 80s in particular. She's actually still active today, but she was a promoter of a religion that she called the New Christianity. It was... Christian in the loosest sense of the word. An article in the Wall Street Journal back in the 80s uh, summed up her teaching really well. This is the title. The Reverend Terry has a gospel to cheer the me generation. Affluence is your right. Yuppies take notice. Good news for the me generation. And, and here are some quotes from her from that article. Happiness is limitless and people don't need to change for the better, but simply to realize that they're already perfect. She doesn't believe in sin. She doesn't believe in hell. She says sin is simply self-hatred. And hell is what some of us build for ourselves right here on earth. She says pray to be released from all guilt having to do with power, with money. God loves you. He never judged or condemned you. It's a comforting message, isn't it? Do what you want to do. Never feel guilty. God doesn't have any sort of standards for you. And of course, since there's no such thing as sin, there's no room for Christ in that sort of gospel, if we can even put that term on it. In that Reverend Terry gospel, Jesus never went to the cross. He certainly never asked anyone else to take up their cross and follow him. He never suffered in Gethsemane. It's all gain, no pain. And I mention that not to, to pick on her or not to talk about one particular example as if it's irrelevant, but the point is, I would say that sounds like a lot of people's popular conception of Christianity today. And somehow, this ancient story in 1 Kings 18 suddenly sounds very modern because it sounds just like what we read here. You see, they hadn't turned completely from the one true God. They still worship Yahweh. They just worship Baal too. They diluted their allegiance to him. They'd watered it down to the point that it not only wasn't exclusive, it was no longer really recognizable anymore. Don't we see that happening today? Your God is as good as my God. You worship your God, I'll worship mine. And you know what? Sometimes I'll go worship yours too because it really doesn't matter. We're all on many paths to that one place. There are many truths. We're all taking our own road to God. But that's not Elijah's message, is it? Yahweh is God. 
separate yourselves from the world's values, he says. Not, not isolation. We talked today about being salt and light. You can't do that if you live in isolation. But separation. We can't conform to the world. We can't be contaminated by what it teaches and what it values. Jesus isn't only a way. He is the way. It's exclusive. It's uncompromising. It's utterly convicted. That brings us to the second thing I want us to know. Turn to Romans chapter 12. This is a passage that is one of those that's so familiar to us that I wonder sometimes if we actually really listen to what it has to say. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There are two words in this passage I want us to focus on in particular, and they emerge really from that life of Elijah. They're conform and transform. Don't be conformed. Be transformed. And as we study Scripture, what we see is that we can fit basically every character we encounter into one of those two categories. They either conform to the world or they live transformed lives. And actually, by living those transformed lives, they transformed the world around them. By living out that good and acceptable, perfect will of God, they had a real effect on others. We can think of any number of examples in these two categories from Scripture. Ananias and Sapphira. They conformed. They were like those we're talking about that were Christian, but not too Christian. They identified with the church. They said their prayers. They gave to the church. They attended worship regularly, but they wanted to be praised by people. They wanted to look good. They wanted people to think that they were better than they were. And so they conformed to the world's values by lying to God. Judas, there's someone who conformed to the world. He had the privilege of listening to the teachings of Jesus. Day in and day out for the better part of three years, he heard the words of Jesus from his very own lips. And yet he valued a handful of silver more than he did that relationship with the Lord. He conformed to the world's love of money. But we could think of others on the other happier side of the ledger. Joseph. There's a great example in the Old Testament of someone who refused to conform. He was sold into slavery. It would have been easy for him to think that his God had abandoned him. And yet, even when faced with that temptation of committing adultery with his master's wife, something that he probably could have gotten away with, he didn't conform. Instead, he lived a transformed life and in time transformed the world in which he lived, not only for the Egyptians, but for his family. Daniel is another good example. On multiple occasions, Daniel refused to conform by eating at the king's table. He wanted to eat a diet that was pleasing to God. He refused to conform later by praying to the king, but instead insisted on praying only to God. He kept believing, he kept praying, and that transformed life transformed the world around him. And we could say the same thing for Peter and James and John and virtually anyone else you want to hold up as a man or a woman who is faithful to God. The pressures were there, but they didn't conform. 
They live transformed lives that ultimately transform the world. As it says in Acts, they turned it upside down, or right side up. Might be a better way to think about it. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters because you're going to end up hating one and loving the other. And that's really the present state of our society. We have a lot of gods, a lot of altars beckoning for us to worship at. And the world says, you can be a Christian on Sundays. You can believe in God. You can follow Jesus. Just come and Come and worship at the other altars, too. It's okay. You can have it both ways. But Elijah says, don't conform. Be transformed. Offer your bodies, as Paul says, as living sacrifices. Give yourselves up, the best part of yourself, fully, completely to God. Renew your mind, as he says. Let God's Word teach you and mold you and shape your thinking and your values and all of your actions and the way you interact with everyone, then you'll prove what God's will is, what's good, what's acceptable, what's right. That's Elijah's message for us. And that's the message I want to leave you with tonight. We dare not compromise it. We dare not dilute it or water it down. Are you conforming to this world? Or are you transformed? Have you compromised? If you need to make changes in your life this evening, if we can help you in any way, you have the opportunity to make your need known publicly while we stand and sing.